at long last, The Violent, or The Seventh Circle of Inferno. I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast, Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we walk slowly, passage by passage, through Dante's masterwork, comedy, and we are up to Canto 12 of Inferno, and we are about to descend to Circle 7 of Hell, The Violent, and we're going to be here for a while. Let me just say that if you're new to this podcast, if you dropped in here, there is a lot behind us, a whole heck of a lot behind us. You might want to go back to the beginning and catch up to here. You can just try it here. Here's the passage, Canto 12, lines 1 through 30. The spot where we started to descend into the gorge was almost alpine, and given what else was there was enough to make any eye shun the sight of it. Like that rock slide that shook the shores of the Adige on this side of Trento, whether because of an earthquake or slippage in the terrain, the one that moved a mass of rocks from the mountaintop, scattering them about so that they outlined a pathway down for someone up above, that's what the way down that ravine was like. What's more, on the edge of the craggy chasm, the infamy of Crete was sprawled out, the one who was conceived in an artificial cow. And when he saw us, he chewed himself as if he'd been shattered inside by rage. My sage cried out to him, Maybe you believe this guy's the Duke of Athens who handed you your death up in the world. Get out of the way, beast. This guy didn't get here because he was schooled by your sister, but he does come to see your pain. As a bull, jerking loose at the moment it receives a fatal blow that cannot run but bucks back and forth so I saw the minotaur do the same and my cautious guide cried out run for the exit it'd be great if you could get down while he's enraged this is how we found our way down the rubble of all those stones that moved this way and that under the unaccustomed weight of my feet I'd like to say something about Canto 12 to start off. This Canto has come in for a great deal of negative commentary over the centuries. I just pulled out some phrases. Disharmony of tone, discontinuous through story, numerous atonalities. You go back through the commentary for centuries and Canto 12 of Inferno is, well, kicked about. I'd like to offer you a more potential way, more potential? How about just a potential way to think about this canto's artistry? I think what's happening here is our poet, Dante, is adjusting to his new freedom. Think back where we were. We were at the walls of Dis. We got through the walls of Dis. We get to where Virgil has never been. The first thing that occurs are the heretics, the burning tombs, Ferranata, Cavalcante, that whole amazing mess of two and three conversations overlapping each other. Then we got Canto 11, and we got the map ahead. So it's almost like we got past the Virgilian landscape, and then we got this bit of kind of Dantean poetics amongst the heretics. This is what I get to do without a master necessarily guiding me, and then this is where I'm going to go, Canto 11. This is the map ahead so canto 12 and i think and this is a supposition and you could argue against me i think 
that our poet is getting used to his new freedom and that sometimes the cantos get a little uneven here. There's also a problem because this canto 12 is sandwiched between way back with Farinata and Cavalcante and then a figure that's going to occur in canto 13. And the figure in canto 13 is overwhelming to say the least. So this canto here gets set between two giant overwhelming conversations with giant overwhelming sinners in hell. And here comes this canto. And we've passed through that discursive material. And now here we're at the edge of the terrain. So let's just start down the canto. The spot where we started to descend into the gorge, right there, the first line, it calls us back to Canto 11, lines 1 through 3. If you remember the front of Canto 11, they came to the edge. They caught a whiff of lower hell. They couldn't stand it. They struggled back and straggled back and got under the lid of a heretic pope's tomb. And then Virgil gave his big discourse and Dante asked his two questions on the map of hell and all that stuff. Well, actually, we're right back there now. Now we're back standing on the edge of the abyss. So this shows us that Canto 11 is, as it were, parenthetical. It's showing us that this is connecting from the opening lines of Canto 11, then Virgil's big discourse and the two questions, and now we're right back here. In essence, the poem is starting to have two different modes. It's starting to have, for lack of a better word, a plot mode and then a discourse mode. And these two modes are going to become more and more in tension and in play with each other all the way through Paradiso. One of the problems in Paradiso, and one of the reasons people have problems with it, and I know we're a long way off from Paradiso, but one of the reasons people have problems with it is because the discursive mode is equal to the plot mode in Paradiso, and it's hard for some people to get their brains around that. In other words, they want more plot than people standing around talking about how things are or why things are or the way things are. But I think what we're seeing right here is the beginning of this. We've already had this with the goddess fortune and the discourse with the goddess fortune from Virgil amongst the avaricious. But I think that was a, a one-off at that moment. Now, I think we're starting to see the poet is figuring out a structure, a kind of, how do I say, seesaw back and forth between, for lack of a better word, plot and discourse, or if we want to use fancy words, narrative methodology and discursive methodology. Clearly, we're being shown here that we're coming back to the narrative methodology with some problems as we'll talk about it. Okay, let's move on in the passage. The descent was almost alpine, and given what else was there was enough to make any eye shun the sight of it. The question is, what else is he talking about? What what else that that the eye wants to sh to shun? And the easy answer is the Minotaur. I mean, there sprawls the Minotaur out on the slope in the path, and you know, there's the Minotaur. But is that really it? Is it the eye would shun the descent? The descent is scary across this rock landslide. Or is it something even farther down? In, we'll find out there is a river of boiling blood at the bottom of this slope. So is, is he looking down at that? I mean, it, it's easy to say, oh, it's the Minotaur that he's talking about. But 
it's not exactly clear what you would shun in this landscape, but I tend to think it's the rock slide itself because it says was enough to make any eye shun the sight of it. And then the next thing that happens is the big simile about what this is, like that rock slide. And the word here is ruina. And you should start to think of hell in ruins. I've told you this before, but we're going to start to develop this more fully now. Hell lies in ruins. It's like you came across a ancient city that has been absolutely torn apart and is lying in rubble and ruins. This is important in many ways. First of all, this is how many people experienced the classical world in Dante's day. It's a long story, too much for this podcast, but let's just say that the early Christian centuries, that is, let's say about 200, 300, 400, all the way up to 532 Common Era. 532 is the destruction of the school of Athens, the school of Athenian philosophy. Those years are terrible on the classical world. The Christians are basically tearing up temples, tearing up classical ruins, breaking apart statues of Athena or Zeus, etc. I know there's a lot of talk out there about how Christianity saved the texts of the classical world. Mm, it's estimated that actually more than 95% of the texts of the, of the classical world were lost in the original Christian overtaking of the European landscape. There was a lot of damage. And when you came as a traveler across Alexandria or even Athens, you came across ruins. And in fact, hell lies in ruins like a traveler would find in a distant land in Dante's day, like that rock slide, as he says, that shook the shores of the Adige on this side of Trento. So he's talking about an alpine landscape, whether because of earthquake or slippage in the terrain, I don't know why, there's a landslide there, uh, from that mass of rocks that came down off the top of the mountain, scattering them out so that they outlined a pathway down for someone below. That's the way, that's what the way down in that ravine was like. There's a lot of talk in the commentaries about where Dante gets this. Did he actually see this landslide, which you can visit even today, the Lavini di Marco, or as it's in Dante's day, the Slavini di Marco, now the Lavini di Marco. You can find this today outside of Trento up in the Alpen region. And there's a lot of question of whether Dante saw this or did he read about it in Albertus Manius's books. Um, this passage seems cribbed from Albertus Manius's uh, one of his books. Maybe my point here, and I don't want to get into the debate about whether Dante saw this because I don't. it's not answerable. I don't know whether Dante actually saw this rock slide. My point is that before we descend into this unbelievably surreal landscape of the violent, and believe me, it is unbelievably surreal, before we descend into it, we get this metaphor of our terrestrial existence. So before we go down into hell, we get a picture of what it's like up here on the surface of the earth where we live. And I think that's really important. I think it's really important to recognize that Dante the Poet is continually taking his imaginative landscape and trying to set it 
into the natural world, cranes and doves. We've already passed all of that coming out of a, of a sea, a, a, a choppy waves of a sea and looking back. We've passed all that. This, this move to constantly take this imaginative train of the afterlife and compare it to this world. It's very important that it always comes back to the terrestrial because you could write this poem and never come to the terrestrial. You could write this poem and never come to any earthly landscape. But Dante seems to constantly want to push it back into our world. So the first view of the circle of the violent, the seventh circle, is really of a rock slide outside of Trento. And we get that and we look down over the edge and then we see something. He says, what's more, on the edge of the craggy chasm, the infamy of Crete was sprawled out. Later, of course, we find out this is the Minotaur. And I just want to go through this passage with the Minotaur a little bit because it's a little problematic. It has some rubs inside of it and some little interpretive knots inside of it and some not, but it's an intriguing passage. So, okay, you're looking over the edge and there sprawled out across the way or sprawled out somehow on the rocky slope is the infamy of Crete, the Minotaur, what used to be in the labyrinth, but now is apparently here at the seventh circle of hell. It goes on. It says, the one who was conceived in an artificial cow. Well, if you don't know the story, Pasiphae, the wife of Minos, the king of Crete, fell in love with a bull. She had Daedalus of Icarus and Daedalus. Daedalus construct her a fake cow, a wooden cow. She got inside of it. The bull mounted it. And out of that union, she had the Minotaur. And in fact, Daedalus built the labyrinth that was made to contain the Minotaur. And the Minotaur was held in this labyrinth and demanded, apparently, sacrifices of virgins on an annual basis until finally Theseus put an end to it all. But we'll get to that. And you should know that the word cow used, vaca, is very crude basically a slur and it's a slur still used in some places today vaca crass word she was conceived in an artificial cow this word is used only one other time in comedy vaca in purgatorio 27 lines about i think in the 40s 41 2 3 somewhere right in there anyway somewhere at purgatorio 27 this word is used again and it's again used in exactly the same way again back to pasiphae the wife of minos the king of crete it's used the same way twice but again it's a crass crass word in fact one of the things that's interesting about this passage is the number of words that get used that are crass when dante did that uh that that uh simile of the of the rock slide he said that's the way uh that's what the way down the ravine looked like the word ravine there is burrato a very unusual word the language of the comedy seems to be changing it seems to be getting coarser more slang words are being picked up it's all changing around the the poet and the pilgrim and perhaps this goes back to my point that the poet is adjusting to his newfound freedom to write in a much more conversational and a much more, well, mm, vulgar way, which is what's happening here. When the Minotaur saw them, he chewed himself as, as, he, as if he'd been shattered inside by rage. Ira, rage, it is mentioned more times in this canto than in any other. And you're going to say, 
wait a minute, we had the wrathful already up there in, in sticks, remember? And the wrathful and the sullen in sticks, how, what, you, you're telling me that the, the word wrath or rage is used more in this canto than even up there? Yes, more so. In fact, notice, what does this minotaur do? He starts to chew on himself. Remember Filippo Argenti up in the swamp of sticks? He chewed on himself too. There's a deliberate parallel getting set up here between those enraged and these enraged and we'll talk more about this in future episodes but clearly those enraged is a kind of wrath that is out of control incontinent this is going to be a much more determined wrath but right here we're linking Filippo Argenti and the wrathful up there in the fifth circle with here the minotaur in the seventh circle who is chewing on himself my sage the passage goes on cried out to him maybe you think this guy's the Duke of Athens. He's referring to Theseus. Remember, Theseus is the one who defeated the Minotaur. Theseus went into the labyrinth. He used the string that Ariadne had given him. He followed Ariadne's string in order to get back out. He killed the Minotaur. So he says, maybe you believe this guy, Virgil says, maybe you believe this guy's the Duke of Athens. Notice he didn't say king. Duke. It's a common problem in the Middle Ages. Theseus is called the Duke of Athens because in the Middle Ages, Athens had become a dukedom. Theseus is the king of Athens, but okay, it's a common mistake in the Middle Ages to refer to Theseus as the Duke of Athens. And there's another thing that's interesting here. Theseus has already been mentioned once. Theseus was mentioned by the Furies up on the walls of Dis. Now Theseus is mentioned here. And think about it just a moment. There at the walls of Dis, Virgil failed in the face of Christian demons. Here, Virgil seems to be back on more familiar ground. Virgil seems to put the Minotaur into a rage that they are able to get by. So it's interesting that Theseus comes up in both places, one where Virgil's blocked and one where Virgil gets by here with the Minotaur. What this tells us, all of this weird stuff about, oh, the, the Minotaur's chewing himself like Filippo Argenti up amongst the wrathful and Theseus was mentioned on the walls of Dis and now is mentioned here. The poem is starting to reference itself. It's starting to refer back to pieces of itself. And this will become a more and more prevalent and dominant structure of the poem itself as it moves forward. That tells you that the poem <laughs> is picking up a lot of moss as it rolls downhill. Rolling Stone may gather a lot of moss and this poem is picking it up because it's referring to itself. It's referring to its own structure and its own uh, uh, illusions as it goes forward. That seems very important. So Virgil says, maybe you think this guy's the Duke of Athens who ended your death up in this world. Get out of the way, beast. You, this guy didn't get here because he was schooled by your sister, Ariadne. But he does come to see your pain. And I want to stop right here. He does come to see your pain. This seems a new emphasis. In other words, Virgil in the past, when he has met with these figures before each of the circles, has thrown out his spell. This is willed, or what is willed is what is done. You know, that spell that he had that he threw out or that he defeated Plutus with. It's just this constant reference to God's will, right? Here it seems different. Here it seems what sets the Minotaur off and gets them by is a reference to Dante, well, the poet. 
or Dante's position as an observer, perhaps for the first time, we're being told that the poetry is divinely guided, not just the journey, because the point of this guy coming by you, O Minotaur, is so he can see your pain. And why would he want to see your pain? Because it's going to become the text, because it's going to become what he's going to write about. And just, I think it's the barest glimmer right here. We have this notion that the poem may be divinely guided or the poet in his vision, in, his, in what he is being shown is being divinely guided, not just the journey through the afterlife itself, but actually what results from it, the poetry. I realize it's not completely in this passage. He does come to see your pain, but the emphasis on point of view and the emphasis on visually seeing things, and that's the point of this journey, starts to push us back toward poetry itself, toward the creation of this poem. And this theme, frankly, will become overwhelming by the time we're up in Paradiso, that the poem itself is divinely guided. But I think this may be the first moment that idea occurs. So the Minotaur jumps around, cannot run, bucks back and forth. So I saw the Minotaur do the same. And I just should tell you that many, many commentators use this line to say that this Minotaur is different from what you might be expecting. Because this Minotaur bucks back and forth and because this Minotaur chews on itself and for other reasons, many commentators believe that this Minotaur is not a bull's head on a man's body, but is the reverse, is in fact a man's head on a bull's body because the bull would go back and forth, buck back and forth on its four legs. A lot of commentators see that, and there's some reason to believe that. It, it, it brings up the uh, notion of what we're about to, what's about to happen to us, which is that we're about to meet the centaurs, who have, of course, animal bodies with human torsos and heads. And so it makes the Minotaur more resonant with them. It could be that Dante's imagining that. He wouldn't have known any of the mosaics that we see of Minotaurs with bull's heads and human bodies. Dante wouldn't have known any of that. He would have only really known about this from Ovid. And he may be picturing it differently than, let's say, how you're picturing it. But there's a bigger question here about this Minotaur and what he looks like and Virgil putting him down and all that stuff. Okay, here's the question. What is this figure? Is it a guardian of the seventh circle of hell? Or is it an allegory of the bestial nature of violence? And that's a big question. And if this figure is a guardian, then a guardian of what? So let me just back up. We've met other figures before, right? We met Charon and Plutus and Cerberus and Minos. We, you know, we've met these figures before that seem guardians of various circles and in some ways connected to the circle, but Minos isn't really connected to the lustful. He's a sure judge, a cognoscente of sin. He's not really an allegory of lust standing there. Maybe Cerberus is an allegory of gluttony because he's got three gullets or three throats or three mouths or, you know, I mean, he can eat a whole lot. Plutus, an allegory of wealth? I don't know. It doesn't seem like it. He just, you know, stands there clucking like a chicken and then falls down. It doesn't, and, and speaking weird language, Papa Alepi, Papa Alepi, Satan, it doesn't seem like he's an allegory of avarice. But here... It's a little odder because we're about to come into a kind of bestial anger. So perhaps this figure is more of an allegory. But I will tell you, 
that I see the figure of the Minotaur as a guardian. But that also brings up another question. A guardian of what? Is the Minotaur a guardian of the rock slide? Is he a guardian of just the first part of the seventh circle of hell? Remember, Virgil has told us there are three parts to this circle. You can commit violence against your neighbor, against yourself, or against God. So is he just a guardian of the first part? Or is he a guardian of the entire seventh circle of hell? All of the sins of violence, all three rungs of it. I'm going to say that it's the latter for me. I'm going to say that because I think there's a guardian of the eighth circle and then a bunch of guardians of the ninth circle. So I'm going to say he's a guardian of the whole seventh circle, but you should know that that's controversial and it's not necessarily the way many commentators see the Minotaur. Some see him as only the guardian of the rock slide. Some see him as only the guardian of this first ring of the violent, and some see him as not a guardian at all, but as an allegory of a bestial kind of rage. If you take my reading, that he is the guardian of this entire seventh circle, it brings up a huge and fascinating question, and I'm going to follow this out all the way until Canto 17. So just to tell you, my reading of him as a guardian of the whole circle brings up a question that was going to dog us for a long time, and that is this. How is the seventh circle of hell a labyrinth? After all, the denizen of the labyrinth, the Minotaur, is standing here. So how is the seventh circle of hell a labyrinth? How can you get lost in it? And how does our pilgrim get lost in it? Those are the questions that I think will dog us through Canto 17 all the way through the circles, the smaller circles of the violent inside the larger circle of the seventh circle of hell. So this Minotaur is dancing back and forth, and we come to the last bit of the passage. This is how we found our way down the rubble, they're running, of all the stones that move this way and that under the unaccustomed weight of my feet. The passage ends with a reference to Dante the Pilgrim's corporeality. The stones on this landslide are slipping about as they run down the scree of this cliff or this slope. And so the stones are slipping about under the weight of his feet. Interesting that there's a need here to emphasize the Pilgrim's corporeality. Remember I said that that was an unanswered question early in comedy and then it got answered when he stepped into Phlegus's boat and it sunk a little deeper into sticks and I said now we know Dante takes up weight he's no longer that figure ghostly floating over the stream in limbo but he's he's in his body he's in his flesh and here the stones are moving why why do they need to emphasize that here is it to show us that well that thing back there the minotaur was half man and half beast but dante is all man because the stones are moving purposefully where he puts his foot instead of just this enraged but dance back and forth maybe is it to show us the difference between dante as corporeal and the non-corporeal entities we're about to meet maybe is the minotaur corporeal that's a big question is Minos corporeal? Is Karen corporeal? Seems like it, with the way he beats them with his oar. Seems like he's corporeal. Is that Minotaur back there? Is it, is it in its flesh? It's going to dog us a little bit, and it's going to find us in this canto. But to get there, you got to subscribe. You got to stay tuned. We got lots more of just Canto 12 and the Violet to go, and lots more of the Violet to go, believe me. 
But all those questions will come up in future passages. So subscribe, like this podcast, go to the bottom of the Apple page. There's write a review. Please write a review. I would most appreciate it. And come back because they're not even down the slope yet. And we got to get them down there so they can meet the first of the violent on the podcast, Walking with Dante. Walking with Dante.